have any choice in the matter if God has chosen you to be saved. And the other group said, well, you do have a choice in the matter. And so there were these two groups. And um, but there was one man. He didn't know which group to, to join. And so he stood there for a moment trying to decide whether to join the group of predestinarians or the free will group. And at last he joined the group of those uh, called the predestinarians. And so that group said to him, well, who sent you? And he replied, no one sent me. I came of my own free will. Free will, they exclaimed. You can't join us. You belong with the other group. We believe that God has not given us free will. And so he followed their orders and he went over to the other group. And there someone said, when, you, when did you decide to join us? And this young man replied, well, I didn't decide. I was sent here. And they shouted, sent here? You can't join us unless you have decided by your own free will. And so there are these two groups, <laughs> uh, Calvinists and Arminians. Well, there are serious-minded people who have actually believed that God predestines some to be saved and some to be lost, regardless of their real wishes or choice in the matter. And this is discouraging to those who find it hard to believe that God would choose them to be among the few fortunate ones to be saved. And one who thinks he has been numbered among the unlucky ones that haven't been chosen to be saved will probably do one of two things. Either they'll live in despair that God doesn't like them, he didn't choose them to be saved, or else they'll just throw up their hands and say, I'm going to live the way I want to and live the way of the world. Well, if such a doctrine of predestination were true, one can hardly imagine any bad news that could be worse than to receive a rejection slip from God. Imagine if one is rejected by God, getting a slip from him and say, you're no good for salvation. And to make matters worse, those who have believed in such predestination, they usually believe that those unlucky ones who have gotten the rejection slip, they're the ones that are going to roast and they're going to sizzle consciously in a terrible flame for all of eternity. They're going to be writhing and screaming in endless horror while a vengeful God who sent them there looks on just nodding his head in approval. Well, dear friends, the Bible paints a better picture of God than that. And there is a Bible teaching of predestination, but when you examine it, you find that it is quite a bit different from the one that some people have assumed it to be. You see, God has predestined everyone to be saved. And the only way anyone can be lost is to veto the vote that God has already given in his or her favor. In other words, they can undo the salvation that the Lord has already wrought out for them in Jesus. If you want to take your Bibles, we'll do a little Bible study this evening about this. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And verses 3 and 4. For this is the good and acceptable uh, in the sight of the Lord, who desires all men, verse 4, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God 
our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. So God does more than just sit idly by wanting all to be saved. He actually does something to bring it about. Jesus said that by his cross, he would reach out and he would touch all men. You can find that in John chapter 12 and verses 32 and 33. John chapter 12 and verses 32 and 33. It says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So the cross is the great magnet by which Jesus said he would draw all men. So God just doesn't want all men to be saved. He actually does something about it by drawing all men to the cross, all men and women. And furthermore, it says in John chapter 1 and verse 9 that he is, Jesus is the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And the word light, as we have come to understand it, means he is the true life which lights every man that comes into the world. So Jesus is drawing. He is pulling us gently, but he will not force us against his will. But his drawing is firm, and it is a persistent drawing. And I'm sure there is no morally responsible human being anywhere in the world who can either read or hear these words who has not been enlightened somehow by that light of Jesus or felt its drawing power in some way in their lives. Now go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll look at the first few verses here in this chapter. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he, ha- he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And verse 11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. It says up there in verse 4 that he has chosen us in Jesus or in him when before the foundation of the world, before we ever were walking on the earth or born into this life, he's chosen us in Jesus Christ. 
Now, Paul doesn't give any hint that anyone is excluded here, that all have been, uh, that anyone has been excluded or predestined to be lost. All have been predestined to be saved in him. It means that all in the human race are chosen who will welcome this good news. And God sees things before they happen, and he knows people before they are born. And uh, we know that uh, this was the case, for example, of a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Jeremiah, uh, who came to understand that God loved him very much. The Lord told him in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet. Well, if the Lord knew beforehand of Jeremiah before he was born, surely he must know of every precious soul before they were born into this world. God has that ability to foreknow that way. In the same way, the Lord has appointed every person to be saved And uh, his Holy Spirit is working. It says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, the Holy Spirit is working to lead all men to a knowledge of the truth. doesn't mean that everyone will at last be saved. Sad to say, many will be lost. But it will not be the fault of God nor the result of his rejecting them. Also, the good news uh, regarding this is set forth very powerfully in Romans. Chapter 8 and verse 28. Let's look at that text together. Romans chapter 8 and beginning in verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew. So how many does God foreknow? He knows all of us ahead of time, doesn't he? Before we were born, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So this is expressing to us that, uh, and then later on there, it says, if God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So we read here that, that whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. We have some... Calvinist friends uh, who live close by where my father lives back in Michigan, and they understand God's predestination to mean that before the creation of intelligent beings on this earth, that God chose to favor certain ones with salvation and others he chose to uh, for eternal hellfire. I don't think there's any Seventh-day Adventists who would follow that kind of an interpretation of God's predestination. Uh, On the other hand, we find that some understand the following words to pertain only to believers, those who believe 
the words Romans 8.30, which says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Well, if God's predestination here pertains only to believers and not to unbelievers, then God has singled out only those who respond by faith to his offer of salvation as eligible for justification and glorification. But the Father, without whose knowledge not even a sparrow falls to the ground, knew from ancient times every son and daughter of God. And just consider the phrase, whom he did predestinate. It's, it's a, 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 a whom he did predestinate is completed action. And this predestination is in Christ. And so in Christ, we have already been blessed with all spiritual blessings. Then it says, them he also called. And it's certainly true that God calls everyone to be saved. He, he makes a fair call to everyone. God's gift to everyone who has been born would not be well-intentioned unless his call was particular to every individual. You say, well, how does God call every individual? He calls us by the conviction which the Holy Spirit brings to our hearts and to our lives. The Holy Spirit is seeking to convict all of their sin and of their need of salvation. Surely the Lord leaves no one who has ever been born out of this important step of conversion. Isaiah 43 verse 1 says, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. That's a great encouragement to us that he knows us by name and that he calls us by name. Then the text says not only has he called us, but he's also, then he also justified it said. And again, this is past action on God's part. So everyone has been given the gift of justification of life. But Paul also continues further by saying, them he also glorified. And uh, how can the unbelieving be said to be glorified? And it's in the sense that Paul said of his unbelieving fellow Jews, kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to them pertain the adoption and the glory. Glorification is the change that comes when Jesus returns. He bestows immortality upon mortal flesh, and then we're no more subject to temptation. So in Christ, every person has been given the gift of legal justification and glorification. By the way, Ellen White um, says this in Selected Messages, Book 1, page 390, uh, regarding calling. Calling is the drawing of the sinner to Christ, and it is a work that is wrought by the Holy Spirit upon the heart, convicting of sin and inviting to repentance. Well, is there a hidden catch here, some fine print, maybe that would exclude some unlucky person from this good news? There is no fine print. No one is excluded from the call and the gift of predestination, justification, and glorification. Paul simply assumes that his readers join him in responding to this wonderful love of God. And if we don't resist, we are included in the family. The happy thing is that those who respond are predestined to be changed into absolutely beautiful people, according to this promise, conformed to the likeness of his son. So the predestination is, is progressive, 
Well, don't the scriptures say something about God's maybe playing a dirty trick on folks that he calls and predestines and justifies and glorifies? Take, take for example, the, the uh, case of Pharaoh in Egypt. Did God play a dirty trick on Pharaoh by hardening this poor king's heart so that he could not repent? As we think about uh, this, there are several texts there in the Old Testament, one in Exodus 4.21, where we read that the Lord said, I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. And then there are nine other similar statements that the Lord would harden the king's heart or make it stubborn. And at first glance, it seems that this is a pretty bad case against the Lord, that the Lord is making Pharaoh stubborn and hardening his heart. But there are also ten statements that say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. For example, Exodus 8, verse 15, where it says, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite or a temporary relief from the plagues, he hardened his heart, it says, He hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. So even the heathen many years later admitted in 1 Samuel 6, verse 6, that the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts. It says in 1 Samuel 6, verse 6. When the Lord said, I will harden his heart, he meant that he would withdraw the uh, restraining softening influence of the Holy Spirit. He would leave the king to indulge his chosen feelings. And Pharaoh had chosen feelings of rebellion against God. And uh, so God focused his spotlight on Pharaoh to show all of us the awful reality of what we can become if we resist the Holy Spirit. It's, It's like a lump of clay out in the bright sunshine. The only way to keep a lump of clay soft is by watering it. This is a good time, by the way, to pull the weeds out in your lawn because the rain has softened the clay. But if you wait until it gets hot and the summer months come on, those weeds will be impossible to pull because the clay will be hard, see. Well, Because Pharaoh resisted and rebelled against the softening influence of the love of the Holy Spirit seeking to draw him to God, uh, he was resisting the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's restraining and drawing power had gradually be withdrawn from Pharaoh because he didn't want it. And so by rejecting this rain of God, this water, this Holy Spirit from God, the clay of old Pharaoh's heart was just hardened, see? So it's kind of a natural process that was at work. It's working itself out in the king's choice in accordance with universal laws that God has ordained. You get the idea then? The same gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ that melts our hearts when we hear it, when we appreciate what he's done for us and literally saved us from hell and having to go there, That same gospel news that causes us to go to our knees and confess that we are sinners, our our hearts are convicted, 
other people will hear that gospel and they will harden their hearts toward it and they will resist it and refuse to make the admission that they are sinful. And so they are tracking in the way that Pharaoh is going. So now this is what it means by saying that God, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. How does God do that? By his love, by his love of his message of love, by his gospel. But it also is true that Pharaoh hardened his own heart by his choices of resistance to the gospel. So if you can see that principle, then you can see both sides of the same coin. It's true that God hardens people's hearts when he proclaims the gospel to them, and they resist it. But if they don't resist, uh, they will be drawn all of the way, won't they? Now, the Apostle Paul understood what was happening to Pharaoh. And if you look in Romans chapter 9 and verse 14, he discusses it in Romans chapter 9, verse 14. Uh, Paul starts off with an interesting question here. Is God to be charged with injustice? And he's talking about the case of Pharaoh. Paul says, by no means. For he says to Moses, where I show mercy... I will show mercy, and where I pity, I will pity. God shows his mercy and his pity toward poor sinners. He goes on, thus it does not depend on man's will or effort, but on God's mercy. The point is that God initiates it. No man would ever initiate coming to the Lord, except the Lord is the one that starts the whole thing to begin with. And we simply respond to his initiative here. That's what Paul is saying. Thus, it does not depend on man's will or effort. We don't initiate it, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this very purpose, to exhibit my power in my dealings with you and to spread my fame over all of the world. Just think, um, Pharaoh could have had a wonderful opportunity had he responded to the good news of Jesus because he had such powerful influence on people. He held sway over the then-known world. You remember the case of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's day? Uh, he eventually uh, changed his mind about Daniel's God, didn't he? And since Nebuchadnezzar held sway over all the ancient Babylonian world, because he sent out a decree regarding the true God, uh, he became a mighty evangelist in the, in the hands of the Lord. And Pharaoh could have been the same kind of a tool for the, the Lord to spread the fame of the Lord all over the world. The text goes on, Thus he not only shows mercy as he chooses, but also makes men stubborn as he chooses. <laughs> so we understand that now, what that means, that God's mercy uh, proclaims the gospel to us. But if people resist that and hinder it, then they become stubborn. And God can be s said to make that person stubborn <laughs> in the sense that they resist the good news. goes on, you will say, then why does God blame a man? For who can resist his will? Who are you, sir, to answer God back? Can the pot speak to the potter and say, why did you make me like this clay? Surely the potter can do what he likes with the clay. Is he not free to make out of the same lump two vessels, one to be treasured and the other for common use? You see, 
here Pharaoh is compared to a clay pot. And the Lord isn't going to leave that clay pot to itself. He's going to do something. He's going to act, interact with that clay pot. And what's going to happen is that pot is either going to become a treasured vessel or it's just going to become a common thing and it'll be thrown out and be broken into pieces on the dump outside the gate. So let's not put words in God's mouth that he did not say. The potter never makes a vessel in order to break it or throw it away. That's not God's purpose. Jeremiah says that a wise potter, and certainly the Lord is a wise uh, potter, isn't he? He is the master molder of the clay on the wheel. He's not going to discard a vessel that gets marred on the wheel. He wants to shape it into something else that's useful one that was originally intended to be treasured, however, because of resistance, may end up as a common thing. But it was never the Lord's plan, never the Lord's plan that Pharaoh should be a lost man. That was never God's plan. But because Pharaoh chose the way of rebellion, the Lord let him become an outstanding example of what people make of themselves when they resist the Holy Spirit. Throughout the tragedy of Pharaoh's progression from initial stubbornness to rebellion and bitterness, the Lord was very patient. The Lord was merciful. Paul points this out in verses 22 and onward. He says, What if God, desiring to exhibit his retribution at work and to make his power known, tolerated very patiently those vessels which were objects of retribution due for destruction, and did so in order to make known the full wealth of his splendor upon vessels which were objects of mercy and which from the first had been prepared for this splendor. Such vessels are we whom he has called from among Gentiles as well as Jews. You know, on the judgment day, God, uh, Pharaoh will never shake his fist at God and say, all right, God, you program me to harden my heart. It's your fault that I became hard of heart. God would quietly answer, you could have been a vessel for splendor, but I left you to have your own way, which you chose. The good news tells us that God has given to every one of us a complete pardon and welcome into his family if only he will choose to accept it. Say amen to it and not resist it. And uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 Verses 8 through 10 says, God hath saved us and called us with a holy calling in Christ Jesus before the world began. And it goes on to say, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So we cannot rewrite Paul's words for him. Christ has abolished death. If any human being at last suffers the pain, of the second death, it will be against God's will and action because that punishment was never intended for any sinner. It was only prepared specifically for the devil and his angels, according to Matthew 25, verse 41. Any human who gets there does so, anyone who gets into hell does so because they have thwarted God's salvation that was already wrought out for them, just like Saul was kicking against the Lord's leading. 
Another one of the most explosive ideas in God's good news, grace, is grace, which is kindness. Grace is kindness, which is shown to the most undeserving. And that includes everybody. (laughs) Everybody's undeserving. And it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So God's grace is for everyone undeserving. It's for all men, all men and women. There are various translations of this passage that differ uh, significantly. Uh, significantly from this rendering because some translators can't fathom how good the good news is. However, the New American Standard Bible is true to the original meaning. Paul also said this, and I'd have you look at this text in Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. And I'll read it to you from the New English Bible. Romans 5.18, it follows then that as the issue of one misdeed, and of course one misdeed was Adam's misdeed, was condemnation for all men, so the issue of one just act, and the one just act would surely be Christ's sacrifice of himself on the cross. The issue of one just act is acquittal and life for all men. And That was the New English Bible. The King James Version says, The free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. I suppose there's four ways that this text primarily has been understood. Number one, that justification means what it says, but that the all men doesn't mean what it says, that Christ died only for the elect. That's certainly how the Calvinist would understand predestination and would really deny what the apostles said here. A second way would be that the all men means what it says, but the acquittal or justification doesn't mean what it says, that Christ only made a provision for justification while he keeps the cards stacked against all men until they do something good first. But this also contradicts the gospel. The third way is that all men means what it says, And the justification means what it says. Therefore, everybody's going to be saved whether or not they want to be saved. And that is the heresy of universalism. But the rest of the Bible contradicts that false assumption. Sad truth is that the Bible tells us that there will be many who will be lost. But number four, the all men means what it says. And the justification means what it says. That acquittal was affected at the cross for everybody, but this acquittal can be resisted and rejected and reversed by the perverse choice of the sinner not to believe. Now, that's the true Bible understanding of this verse. Could Paul's enthusiasm maybe have outstripped his common sense when he wrote those words in Romans 5.18? Well, Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Verse 17, But that the world through him might be saved. The world through him might be saved. In Matthew 26.28, it says that Jesus' blood was shed for many. 
In John 6.51, it says that he gave his flesh for the life of the world. For the life of the world. Ah, yes, maybe someone says, but there's got to be a catch to it somewhere. You've got to do something terribly difficult for most of us. You've got to believe. That's terribly difficult to believe. God pretends, see, God pretends to be ever so generous with salvation, but he still has this loophole. He's stacking the cards against those many. Well, the King James Bible, I think, offers us some good encouragement here to this objection. Is it difficult to work up faith? And Romans 12, verse 3 says that God has dealt to every man a measure of faith. That's a lot of good encouragement there. God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. You know, if God had handed out this measure arbitrarily, it would confirm the predestination lie against his character. For he would be handing out tickets to heaven to just his favorites and slamming the door in the face of others. But not only has God given Jesus our Savior to every man, but with the gift he has added the measure of faith to receive him. And this means that everybody becomes responsible for what he does with the gift of salvation that's placed in his hands. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, verse 8. So it follows then that the only way that anyone can be lost is to reject that gift that is given by grace so freely to every man. John 3.19, Jesus laid it out clearly. He said, herein lies the test. The light, referring to Jesus, has come into the world, but men prefer darkness to light. And so this preference involves a personal choice on their part. In other words, no one can be lost because of his past sins, for God has provided justification for all. The lost reject it, having preferred to hang on to sin. This may be a, a series of unconscious choices, but the judgment will at last disclose how each lost individual has again and again spurned Jesus the light that brightened his or her darkened soul. And I like the way Ellen White puts it in the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. And I checked the print date on that, and it was written in... 1896, and uh, in writing a little essay on the fruit of the Spirit is meekness this week, I pulled down my thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, and I don't know how I acquired that book, but it's one of the original prints. It's got the original cover on it. It's a beautiful cover, and it's got the print date, 1896, so I'm cherishing that little book. (laughs) But this is what she says on page 139. All along the road that leads to death, there are pains and penalties. There are sorrows and disappointments. There are warnings not to go on. God's love has made it hard for the heedless and headstrong to destroy themselves. That's quite a thought, isn't it? 
And more, more than that, you know, by the Holy Spirit, the Savior is actually, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's actually sitting down alongside of us as we travel down the freeway of life. Think of it. When you get into your car, when you're sitting here in the pew, you have the Holy Spirit who's sitting alongside of you. When you get into your car, the Holy Spirit is sitting there. Whether you've got someone in the, in the passenger seat or not, the Holy Spirit's sitting right alongside of you because that is what the word parakletos means, one who comes alongside of you, a par- who parallels you in life. See? And so it is, it is his job to be one who is called by your side and to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And, uh, of course, we all have personal sin, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of that. And of righteousness, that point, the Holy Spirit always points the sinner to the cross of Christ, and it's in Jesus alone that we find righteousness, his love, and of judgment. And that means that uh, Satan was condemned. He was convicted uh, by Jesus' death upon the cross. And so we know that he's a defeated foe, that he is not stronger than the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is much more strong than he is in our lives. And you know something? The Holy Spirit is never going to get tired of his job with you. Never going to get tired of his job with you. Uh, He's not going to leave us to our perverse ways unless we beat him off persistently just the way Pharaoh did. So that's what Ellen White was getting at there in that statement in Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. God's love has made it hard for the heedless and headstrong to destroy themselves. There's an old song that goes this way, and it's true. And once again the scene was changed, new earth there seemed to be. I saw the holy city Beside the tideless sea, the light of God was on its streets. Its gates were opened wide, and all who would might enter, and no one was denied. See? The whole... The whole, I want someone to sing that song. I really love that song, The Holy City. <laughs> In other words, God's vote is for you, dear heart. God is voting for you, and he has elected us all to be saved. So our job is to say yes and to believe and to let our hearts be softened by the sweet influences of the Holy Spirit showing appreciation for the love by which we have been redeemed. And remember, of course, that the Lord will not force himself on anyone who doesn't like him and doesn't want him around. You know what? The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He's a perfect gentleman. He doesn't force himself upon us like criminals do. He won't coerce us. If he forced anyone to be saved, I think there would be many miserable folks in an environment in heaven where the prevailing spirit, the prevailing spirit of heaven and the new earth is one where there will be a constant heartfelt appreciation to the Lamb of God for his sacrifice. 
And anyone who has rebelled against the Holy Spirit, they just would not be happy in that environment, would they? And the Holy Spirit isn't going to force them into that kind of place. If by accident one rebel found themselves in the holy city, that rebel would run for the nearest exit. They just wouldn't want to be there. So when you see what happened at the cross, the kind of love that pushed Christ to do what he did, all this talk about it being hard to obey and hard to give all to Jesus and hard to surrender, all of that kind of talk just becomes silly. It's only our pathetic blindness in the face of the greatest light that ever shone in all eternity that makes us imagine for a moment that we are sacrificing anything when we give all to Jesus Christ. Justification by faith can never produce one whit less than total obedience to Jesus. You can look at it again in Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Okay. So how can we who appreciate such love not also freely give him all things? He has given us all things. How can we not appreciate him by expressing uh, Complete surrender to him and giving him all things. And I think that such devotion is going to include keeping the Lord's true seventh-day Sabbath. And any vestige of self-caring motivation by withholding full obedience will neglect, negates the truth of justification by faith. It will cancel out faith. If I withhold from Christ full obedience to any one of his commandments, which contains the whole duty of man, I'm programming myself to stand before him at last with downcast face in shame. For I'll never be able to forget how he withheld nothing in his utter devotion to me. For one who accepts God's good news, obedience that once may have seemed hard becomes now a joyous principle. You know, the good news, it works. It works in our lives. It will accomplish something never yet done since time began. It will prepare a people the world over who are ready for the second coming of Christ. A glorious appearing. There will be no faces downcast with shame and the vast throng that are ready to be translated. To have the Lord do something for them and in them will be looked upon as their greatest joy. You can know today that you are expected to be there among the happy ones, not as a guest, but as one belonging to the establishment. Heaven's computers are spelling out your name as one who is predestined to be saved. And even though there are over six billion people here on planet Earth, you don't have to be content with the fraction of one six billionth part of God's loving attention. You're not just lost in the numbers because you are getting the whole of his love. And the reason is that his love is infinite. And he's able to do that for every soul. 
It's, you know, it's like standing outside in the bright sunshine. You get as much as if you were the only person on earth. If you will simply believe it, you are like, any, you are like an only child to your heavenly Father. If anyone cancels God's will for his salvation, he will feel the pain of the rejection. John the Revelator says uh, that when the Lamb had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. You find that in Revelation 8 verse 1. That when the seventh seal was opened, there was silence in heaven. A quietness. I think it would be the first time since all eternity that silence has overtaken the vaults of heaven. And could it be the silence of God's infinite grief, mourning for those who had insisted on disbelieving his good news and thus choosing for themselves the way of self-destruction? It's like what we were talking about on Sabbath. You remember when Jesus... um, when he was finally rejected leading up to the cross and he was overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And um, he was very sorrowful for the, for Jerusalem and he, he was shedding tears for them. And when Jesus returns the second time, it will be a glorious and it will be a wonderful occasion, but there will be tears in Jesus' eyes for all of those who won't be going with him. And it would be like his shedding those tears like he did when he was in his humanity overlooking Jerusalem because Jerusalem, by and large, had rejected him too. So this silence in heaven is probably an indicator of the Savior's swollen eyes, you know, his tears in his eyes for for the lost. Never his purpose, never his purpose for them. Because everyone is predestined in Christ to be saved. But that was their choice. Let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Dear Father in heaven, we pray that this message tonight would be a great encouragement to those of us who have come uh, to worship you this evening. To know that each soul is precious in your eyes. That you have known us all before we came into this world. And you have called us by name. And in Christ, you have predestined us to be uh, called and justified and glorified. So you have voted in favor of us. And nothing can thwart that unless we cast a vote against what you have provided for us, what you have given to us. And our Lord, tonight we again uphold before you... uh, with tears in our hearts, those loved ones who are suffering. And, Lord, maybe you have imparted to us some hope from what we've heard this evening or some other occasions in which we've fellowshiped together, some word of encouragement that we can share with the suffering and with the sick and with those who are on their, on their beds of pain, uh, helping them to know that God cares for them and that he has given his best gift in his son, Jesus Christ, that they have been adopted into his family. And as we have received the, the living water from Jesus, so may that water flow through us to others. We pray this in the Savior's name. Amen.
Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.